you are listening to The Truth Tank, and I am your host, The Tank. If this is your first time listening to The Truth Tank, welcome, and if you are coming back for more, welcome back. This is episode 22 of The Truth Tank, and it is the first episode of 2021. Goodbye to 2020, and let's welcome in 2021. Happy New Year, everyone. I don't think 2021 is going to be all that different from 2020. We probably won't have the chaos of 2020. Hopefully, we won't have any more lockdowns and financial pressure, businesses closing, shit like that. Hopefully, things can kind of get back to normal, but for the immediate future, I don't think things are going to get a hell of a lot better that quick. Not unless a vaccine gets out there and people actually use it. So enough about 2020. How's everyone doing? Everyone enjoyed their Christmas and New Year? I had a pretty good Christmas and New Year. Didn't do much New Year's Eve. I don't really care for New Year's. Had a good Christmas. The average family stuff, but it was pretty good. A big thank you to everyone who downloaded the Christmas special, King Herod, the Biblical Bad Guy or Convenient Villain. Tonight's episode will be a continuation of part one of King Herod. We're going to be looking at his slow descent into madness and his relationship with Mariam I and the significant taking out of most of his family. Like I said, it's a continuation to part one. So if you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you hit pause. Go ahead and download that now. If you're enjoying The Truth Tank, why don't you hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, TuneIn, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Support The Truth Tank, share it around. Before we get into episode 22 and part two of King Terrid, we're going to have a quick recap of part one. In part one, we saw the rise and evolution of the young King Herod in securing his kingdom. We looked at Herod's trials gaining power when he was young and his struggles taking that power back and securing his kingdom. He didn't do this by himself, of course. He had a lot of help from Rome. He he had some pretty influential relationships with some very high-profile Roman leaders such as Caesar, Octavian, Mark Antony, and a lot of other kings and queens in the area such as Cleopatra. This is not without its downside. Everybody in the region wanted a piece of ancient Judah. It was a very fertile place. It it produced a lot of everything. There was a lot of mines, a lot of wood. It had a pretty stable harbour, and everybody wanted a piece of it. The Parthians were constantly invading, and Herod needed a bit of help securing that land. He couldn't do it by himself because at the time there was a lot of political and religious tensions that divided Jerusalem. The old power dynasties were just hanging in there. They were still clinging to that last bit of power they had. These power families had a, had a dynastic hold over Jerusalem. They inherited their power and they continue, wanted to continue their bloodline so they could keep ruling, which puts someone like Herod in a very tough spot because he wants to do his own thing. He wants to usher in the new future of prosperity for Judah, but he comes up against these old school power dynasties and these and these various religious groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees who you know all want who all want control over their own little chunk of Jerusalem all the bad stuff aside it's one of the most fascinating and interesting times in history there's a who's who of characters in this era something is always happening there's never a, never a dull moment there's battle after battle political intrigue One group has killed another group, someone has taken out a leader, someone's replaced that leader, someone wants to invade. It goes on and on and on. There is never a dull moment in Herod's lifetime and before and after that. We also looked at the role of Antipater and how he played a very big hand in bringing up Herod and also securing power for Herod in later life. 
a lot of the Roman relationships were brokered by his father, such as such as the relationship with Mark Antony. His father mentored Antony when he was young. So Herod had a lot of inherited relationships through his father. There's also the death of his brother and a lot of friends and family members. Some were his fault, some weren't. And we also had a look at the biblical Herod, the accounts of Herod the Great in the book of Matthew, to see if there's any relevance or truth to the historical Herod. We also had a look at some of the historical accounts by Josephus, who chronicled a lot of Herod's history a hundred years after his death. So, as I mentioned before, if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and download that. It's a pretty lengthy show, but there's a lot of stuff that needed to be covered. So, without further ado, let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 22, King Herod Part 2. Last left Herod, he had just secured his kingdom with the help of the Romans and his friend Mark Antony. We just got a glimpse at Herod's extreme and fluctuating mental state. This will more or less be the focus of tonight's show and his relationship with his wife. We'll start to see the descent of Herod's mental state and where it leads him. So Herod is on both ends of the extreme spectrum. He could be fair and he could be very just, but he is also very paranoid, brutal and violent. His relationships with family members, especially his wives, were up and down to say the least. If he wasn't paranoid that one of his own family members was going to kill him or usurp the throne from him, he was either planning on killing them or having them removed. It's an old saying about Herod, you are better off being one of his servants or his guards than a member of his own family or his wife. That way you had a better chance of survival. We're going to begin part two by looking at his relationship with his second wife, Mariam, or Mariam I, and his rapidly increasing paranoia and mental state. In the last episode, Herod married Mariam while he was on campaign against Antigonus and the Parthians. The only issue was he was already married to Doris, and he had a son, Antipater. So how does Herod deal with said problem of already being married in a time where you couldn't just go down to the court and get divorced and married another wife. This is a pretty big issue. So he solves his problem. He has both of them banished from the land so he could marry Mariam. The next part of the story gets a little bit confusing. Mariam is an interesting character and there is a good reason why Herod wanted to marry her. She was the last of the Maccabean power dynasty. She was the granddaughter of the old Harakonassus II from episode 1. So this brings up the question, was the marriage purely a political one or... Did he generally love Mariam? Was he just doing this because it was going to buy some political favour with the Maccabean supporters who were still very prevalent even though their power had kind of shifted into decline at this time? Was he just doing this to garner some support from them or one of the other groups that were affiliated with the Maccabeans such as I think the Pharisees were kind of in the Maccabean corner? Like many things... In this time period, there's never just a simple reason for doing something. There's always an ulterior motive. Relationships were usually started because one one or both parties could either get something out of the other. Whether this be power, land, money, troops, food, whatever it was, there's usually a reason behind it. Which also makes trusting people in the ancient world pretty damn hard. Today, it's hard to trust people, but back then, 
It could literally cost your life. If you trusted the wrong person, they could just betray you, switch sides, join another king, join another empire, because they offered a better deal. Loyalty was very, very hard to come by, and it was even easier to buy. So the marriage could be seen as a purely political one. Personally, I think there was probably three reasons why Herod wanted to marry Mariam. The first being, I think he generally did love her, as we'll see later in the story. Two, there's obviously the political one. Yeah, he, you want support, you're a new king. You've just kicked the Parthians out, you've got Roman support. Herod's rattling a lot of cages. There's a lot of people that probably appreciate the change, but there's a, probably a hell of a lot of the old school ruling power base that were pretty unhappy about him and would more or less wanted to see him disappear and have him replaced with someone who was friendly to the core, such as reinstating Harakonassus or or the remnant of the Maccabean line. And thirdly, I think he probably wanted to appeal to the Maccabean supporters. He definitely didn't want to turn things upside down too much. I think he generally wanted to show a respect for what had come before him. He definitely wanted to respect the old ways, but at the same time made a very firm stance that this was the direction he was going to go. He was all for change and for a new way of doing things. At the same time, he definitely needed that connection to the old world, the old power families, and the old way of ruling, if he was to usher in his way of doing things. One side of the marriage was undoubtedly for political reasons. I think it was pre- it's pretty hard to not see the political ramifications of this marriage. Herod wanted to get the Maccabeans and their supporters on the side. Plain and simple. He knew all too well what the symbolism of his union would bring. You had this half Nabataean, half Arab, Jewish by religion and conversion ruler who was bringing a lot of change. He was already a controversial enough figure, so marrying a Maccabean princess was probably a very smart decision to make. He wasn't popular before his rise to power, and his father had his fair share of drama during his time. The family was always looked down on, quote-unquote, for their Mongol origins. They were half this, half that, a bit of something else, something else by religion, by way of conversion... His origins and his family were very much looked down upon. And this is a time period where that counts. If you if you didn't tick all the boxes, you probably weren't going to get very far. On the other hand, Herod wasn't stupid. He was wary of the Maccabeans and didn't trust them. This is not really that surprising given the turbulent history him and his father has had with them. He knew how dangerous they could be. And this goes back to that old saying, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. So is he just keeping his enemies close? Is he literally keeping the closest eye on his enemy that a king has done throughout history? He's literally sharing his bed with the enemy. Is he trying to watch, listen for any inkling that the Maccabeans might try to take over his kingdom or or try to spark a rebellion to rise up against him? Very interesting. There's a million different reasons and theories as what Herod was thinking at this time. It's kind of what just makes sense to you, I guess. Which way do you go on it? Is it just political? Is it for love? Is it for respect for the old way of doing things? Garnering support? There's a lot of different directions that theory could go in. So the marriage, in the end, effectively unites two old and very bitter rivals. It also showed the people how progressive and inclusive the new king and the kingdom at large could be. 
It bridged a racial and class gap and in a way showed a unification and a significance to the many different religious and political groups that inherited Jerusalem at the time. Herod also showed the people that he respected and had a connection with the old ways, as I mentioned a moment ago. On the other hand, Herod generally seems to fancy Mariam. He falls for her. This may have been just based on aesthetics. He might have just thought she was beautiful, but nothing more. He might have fallen for the looks and ignored the personality. As we'll see a bit later on, she is more than a match and she is no pushover. She is a cunning and very dangerous woman. But as always with Herod, drama is soon to follow. He is never that far away from a dramatic event or some type of personal catastrophe happening to him. Whenever Herod seems to accomplish one goal or pacify one dispute or one problem, another one arises pretty soon afterwards. He never seems to get any time off from personal, political or power-based problems. There's always something happening in this guy's life and he can never take his eye off the ball. Which also might explain his rapid mental state. I mean, this is a king that is extremely stressed out. Everyone wants a bit of the of his region. Everyone wants a bit of the kingdom. He can't fully trust his own family or his wife uh, and the you know power and political bases around Jerusalem at the time. You had varying religious groups such as the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who all were bidding for control and power of the of the temple, the city, and the people's minds. So as I mentioned, drama was soon to follow. This is a problem that a lot of husbands and wives can probably relate to today. Enter the mother-in-law from hell and her great plot. So at this time, Herod was around 36 years old, give or take. No one really is 100% on people's ages back then, so we'll just go with 36. He's fallen for Mariam, they've gotten married. And as I mentioned before about the Maccabeans being dangerous, Herod had to let the most cunning and the most dangerous Maccabean of all into his home and into his bed. It wasn't just these two who were plotting against Herod and wanted his kingdom. Cleopatra also had her eye on Judah, and like everyone else in the region, she wanted a piece of the pie. So that really shouldn't be that surprising. The area is called the Fertile Crescent for a reason. Back then they had very stable temperatures and predictable weather. They had it up in the mountains, there was a lot of rain. So a lot of timber minerals, metals, people, valuables, grains, anything that was worthwhile or valuable passed through ancient Judah in one way or another. Everyone wanted it. There was a big port that pretty much everyone in the Mediterranean and the surrounding Middle East came through. The Phoenicians weren't too far away. Egypt was just across the river. Rome and Greece weren't that far away. The north of Africa was only a stone's throw away. The who's who of empires all went through ancient Israel in one way or another. So the mother-in-law, Alexandria, travels to Egypt and she visits Cleopatra, where she conspires to dispose him and overthrow his rule, placing her own son, Jonathan, on the throne. This, therefore, reinstates the Maccabean line. There's a very confusing and intertwined story going on. Alexandra was the daughter of Harakonassus, I believe. Uh, her, her children, Mariam, who was obviously married to Herod, and her younger son, Jonathan, do kind of have a claim to the throne. After all, they have a dynastic and hereditary right to take the throne of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, I guess. Not quite sure how all that works, but 
it was a revolving door of leaders. So she wants to place Jonathan at the head of the high priesthood. It gets very confusing because you have kings and you have political rulers and you have a high priest. The high priest was pretty much the main power base in Jerusalem at the time. It's very confusing, but the religion seems to be the controlling force in the region. And whoever held the high priesthood, like Harakonassus, kind of controlled a huge bit of the political landscape. And that was like we saw with Antipater in part one. He controlled Harakonassus, therefore he was he was basically the power base of the entire region, which also explains why he had so many enemies and why he was eventually assassinated. So there's a very confusing and intergenerational intertwined story going on. So the pair conjure up a plan to take over Herod's kingdom. Cleopatra wants to expand her own territory for obvious reasons. I get that part of it. She obviously she wants to expand territory. A lot of a lot of kings and queens have done this over history. It's not a new tactic by any means. However, she also has the backing of Rome, and she is using Mark Antony's resources to get what she wants. But then again, that's kind of how business is done back then. You use someone to get what you want, and they use you to get what they want, and kind of everyone's happy. And everyone's happy until someone gets a knife in the back or gets poisoned or is overthrown. And if we remember back to part one, Mark Antony was very close friends with Herod and his father Antipater. And Cleopatra is right in the middle of that relationship, driving a huge wedge between Rome and Judah. She's also driving that wedge between Antony and Herod. Mark Antony was instrumental in assisting Herod. And Herod saved Mark Antony's life more than a few times. These two had a very close and very long history. Rome helped Judah and Judah helped Rome. Now that personal and working relationship was now at threat because of Cleopatra and her agenda. So Alexandra, on the other hand, has a far more sinister motivation. The Maccabeans were very proud of their heritage. And this was no different for Maccabean women. Alexandra had a real problem with Herod's background and mixed origins. She couldn't stand the thought of her daughter marrying into a mixed hybrid family like Herod's. To put things in today's terms, her motivations were purely racial. She despised the Herodian dynasty based on Herod's half Nabataean and Jewish ancestry. She believed that the Maccabeans were the rightful rulers of the Jewish people, and not a Nabataean half-breed outcast who came in with the backing of Rome and took the kingdom and the throne for himself, despite how good or bad of a ruler he was. She didn't take into account Herod's character or or his own motivations for wanting to rule Judah. She looked at his background, she looked at his family, and that didn't compute. She wasn't going to have it. The pure Maccabean line were the only true rulers to the Jewish people. Which, in a way, is a pretty fucked up way of looking at things because that brings up a whole other set of problems. There's this arrogance and the superiority that they're the only ones that deserve to rule because they're the ones who have been ruling for all these years. In my own opinion, I think she is probably pretty scared that she's going to lose power. And this was going to be the death rattle of the Maccabean line. After all, her, cho- her children, her son and daughter, were the last of the Maccabean bloodline, pretty much. They didn't have any more relatives that could hold office or that would could that could rise to the challenge of taking on Herod. So I think she's pretty terrified that she's going to lose her prestigious way of life and and the prestige the Maccabean name has granted her, her ancestors, and her children. 
I don't think she wants to to lose that power. It's the same way when you look around the world today, these these old geriatric royal families and power families, power dynasties, whatever you want to call them, they will cling to power to the last tooth and nail. Look at those old senators in the US Senate. Some of them are well past the retirement and pension age, but yet they still hang in there because they have power. Power is the most addictive drug on the planet. It will manipulate and twist people to do some of the worst things imaginable to hold on to that power. So the old and bitter Harakonassus, Alexandra's father, couldn't legally hold the office of high priest anymore due to the ear thing. If you remember back to part one, I think it was Antipater bit off his ears, so he couldn't legally hold office. You had to be whole or something like that, otherwise you were disqualified from rule. So this left young Jonathan in a very precarious spot. He was the next in the Maccabean line, and he was also probably one of the last. Mariam obviously couldn't do it. I don't think a woman could hold the office of high priest. It wouldn't surprise me. That's just how things were back then. So this left the responsibility up to her brother Jonathan. Jonathan is just a pawn in a game, more or less. He has no choice in this whatsoever. He's too young to really make his own decisions. He's been told one thing by his mother. He's going to get all this. He's going to get this prestige. He's going to, you know, he's going to rule. He's going to have the kingdom to himself. He more than likely doesn't know right from wrong at this point, and he has no idea what he's getting himself into, or just who he's going up against. If these two think Herod is going to go down quietly, they have another thing coming. Alexandra wanted and needed Herod gone to restore the Maccabean dynasty. She goes to war with Herod, but not on on the battlefield per se. She goes to war with Herod on a psychological scale. This also might play into Herod's rapidly declining mental state. Unfortunately for Alexandra, she was going up against Lieutenant Neil Herod, uh, who was paranoid at the best of times, and given what he had just been through with the murder of his father and his brother, and the three-year war taking back Jerusalem, Alexandra was going to be no match. Yeah, this guy had probably endured one of the toughest three-year stretches a king of his stature has probably ever gone through. He was involved in a three-year war with the Parthian Empire and, and Antigonus. He was made ruler of Jerusalem and benefactor of Rome. He had a couple of incidents with Cleopatra. He faced a couple of suicide attempts. He lost family members. He was besieged. He was involved in battles. He saved people. He got saved. He laid siege to Jerusalem and eventually came out on top. He faced a lot of personal attacks on his own family origins, his beliefs, his right to rule and for some of his actions when he was a young ruler in Galilee. This is a guy that has gone through a fucking lot in three years, and this Alexandra, this mother-in-law, was just going to come in and take his kingdom away from him? I don't think so. Her biggest mistake was underestimating Herod. Alexandra's own prejudices cloud her judgment. She can only see Herod as a mongrel half-breed not fit to rule. She doesn't see him as a brutal, violent, and very capable king who was more than determined to defend himself and his kingdom from foreign and domestic invaders. He's he's already proved this in the last couple of years, and if she thinks she's just going to come in and take it from underneath him, she's got another thing coming. This is a guy that also has a lot of help from Rome. He has backed a couple of wrong horses over the years. He stayed loyal to Roman rulers who ultimately picked the wrong side of a fight and lost and he had to go groveling back to Rome to to plead his case and why he should still keep his kingdom. 
And this worked all, pretty much all the time because he was proven to be a very loyal friend. And this is one factor he doesn't get enough credit for. Herod was a very loyal friend. He never betrayed his friends even when they were in the wrong. He always backed them up when they picked fights against other Roman rulers and Rome's enemies. He was always upfront about this whenever someone like Pompey went to war with Caesar. He picked Pompey. Pompey lost and he pleaded his case and he was forgiven. Basically on the grounds that he was a good and loyal friend. This is the one fact that gets looked over by a lot of ancient historians is his loyalty. This, I think, is one of his superpowers. His loyalty grants him respect. It also buys him a lot of leeway. He can afford to make mistakes and fuck up a few times because he has proved himself time and time again. Herod did this well. You know, Herod's, Herod's been loyal. He's worked out well for us. Yeah, fair enough. He might have backed Pompey in his war against Caesar. Pompey lost, but then he came. He saw the lie. He came over to us. He said, look, I can't betray my friend. What am I supposed to do? I helped my friend, and I'm willing to help you. So he was a good guy to have in your corner, even if he was a client king of Rome. He was a king that probably didn't need a lot of monitoring. He's not going to make a an alliance with one of Rome's enemies. We can trust Herod to do Herod's thing, rule the kingdom of Judah the way he sees fit, but at the same time, if we need if we need his help, we can always call on him and we know he's got our back. And that's, I think, why he is allowed to do a lot of the things he does, because he buys that leeway from Rome. Unlike a lot of client kings that would jump ship every couple of years, they would either join Mark Anthony in his quest against someone, then they'd jump side, betray him, then go to the side that was facing off against Antony. In other words, you can't put a price on loyalty. And that is the biggest problem in the ancient world with a lot of these rulers and kingdoms is they could be allies one day and enemies the next. No matter how much you paid them, they were basically a mercenary force. They were going to work for the highest bidder. Herod was probably the only exception to that. It doesn't matter how much you were going to offer him, he was going to stay loyal to those who helped him. Friendship and loyalty was obviously a very big thing for Herod. So Alexandra's lack of respect for a man that had endured and proved his worthiness of leading and uniting the people while living in one of the most turbulent times in history would ultimately prove a downfall. There is a lot happening at this time behind the scenes on a personal and professional level. Cleopatra's power had drastically increased due to her relationship and for the lack of a better word, manipulation of Mark Antony. She had acquired more lands and she continued to expand her territory. So some of these lands included parts of Crete, Lebanon and North Africa. But by far the, the most valuable areas she obtained were actually Herod's. And they were Herod's prized date groves of Jericho and the balsam trees. The balsam trees have a very interesting history and were very sacred to the Jewish people. There's a whole biblical and religious link with the balsam trees. They appear right throughout history. They appear in the Bible and the Torah. They were a very unique tree to the area. There was a lot of different uses for this tree. There was a very, it was a multi-purpose, pretty much a Swiss Army knife tree, and it appears through pretty much all of the ancient religions and texts of the time. The funny thing about this arrangement with Cleopatra is that Herod had to rent the olive groves back from Cleopatra. So why doesn't he just take them by force? You might ask. The only problem with that is he was in a very volatile situation. He couldn't afford to upset Mark Antony. He couldn't really afford to upset 
that very beneficial Roman relationship that had paid off for him so well in the past. And as I keep mentioning about multi-generational relationships, this is one of them. There was a very long and sorted history with these two. As I mentioned, his father had mentored Mark Antony, and this is not a relationship that he could afford to upset. I don't think taking back the groves by force would have worked out very well for Herod. Antony also had a very large army, and with Cleopatra in his ear, he probably would have used them against Jerusalem and Herod. But Herod wasn't stupid. He was a very smart and cunning man. He knew what would happen if he upset that very fragile relationship. Yes, the friendship was solid, but at this particular time, it could have been a powder keg that was waiting to explode if he if things had gone the wrong way. Cleopatra is clearly pushing an agenda here. She is using Mark Antony to get what she wants. She wants Judah. She has a little piece of it, but she wants more. Just like everybody else, the fact that she has such a, an important producing area is very significant. I don't think that's a coincidence. This is obviously deliberately done. She would have she would have specifically picked those areas just to rub Herod's nose in it. He would have had to seek permission from Cleopatra, and that's probably how Cleopatra wanted it. This is a clear message to Herod saying, look what I've got, I've got your most important producing area, and I'm going to get the rest of it. Try me and see what happens. So let's have a better look at Herod's political rival, Jonathan. Jonathan was, by most accounts, a pretty boy. He was very handsome, popular, and was the star attraction wherever he went. Even though Jonathan was Marion's brother and Alexandra's son, unfortunately it didn't stop him being used as a political chess piece. If Alexandra had it her way, Jonathan was to be instated as high priest. He was young, popular, and everyone seemed to like him. It was a perfect match. Jonathan's popular, everyone will vote for him, everyone will like him, he'll be able to rule and do whatever he wants, unopposed. Always beware the popular leader. Herod would be removed, Jonathan would take over, and the Maccabean line would rule again. Right? Wrong. On the one hand, Jonathan was the rightful heir to the Judean throne. He heretically has a right to rule. Herod feared this and was very concerned that his right to rule was going to be challenged by a teenager. To complicate things further, during this era, Jonathan's beauty was seen as divine favour. I guess the more attractive you were, the more God favoured you. This might not seem like a big issue today, but back then your face was your greeting and business card. People would judge and idolise a person without knowing their character. A modern day contrast would be celebrities and social media stars. They put all this vain shit out there. People love them and worship them and not realising they're just selfish pieces of shit like everybody else. Some of them are good people, yeah, but there's a lot that are just purely in it for themselves. Same goes for political leaders. You look at how many of them actually care about the people they're supposedly serving and the ones that just care about themselves and their bank accounts. So this was a real problem for Herod. How could he counter the popularity of Jonathan? Alexandra's plan was beginning to take shape. She was moving pieces around on the chessboard and she was preparing to strike. Alexander and Mariam make the first move. The pair have a painting made of Jonathan and they have it sent to Antony. This was basically to show off his beauty and his divine favour. It's a way of garnering support through higher-ups that could be sympathetic to one's cause. 
send a picture to Mark Anthony. He sees, oh, this this guy must be favoured by the gods. Look how beautiful he is. I think I might back Alexandra and Mariam's claim. He appreciates Jonathan's beauty, and like most others, he is taken in by the ever-growing myth of the young Jonathan. The pair's plan is working. During this time, Cleopatra jumps on the Jonathan bandwagon and pledges her support to his claim to the throne. Antony has a bit of a man-crush on Jonathan. He summons him to Egypt so he can meet the young man. While all this is going on, news of this has reached Herod, and he goes to DEFCON 6, red alert mode. He is very alarmed by the request and locks down the palace, refusing to let Jonathan leave the premises. So you can just imagine what Herod is thinking at this time. He is probably very concerned that he is going to lose his kingdom yet again. And this is not by an invading army of thousands of troops and a collaboration between empires. This is by a teenage boy. This was purely psychological warfare. People loved this teenager all because of his beauty and because of his mother propping him up and treating him like a like a pawn on a chessboard and he could be on the brink of losing it all however Herod was on to Alexandra's plan he had her followed wherever she went it's a pretty smart move she was playing a very dangerous game and Herod couldn't afford to let her out of his sight the war was well and truly on you kind of have to feel for Jonathan not in all of this. Does he know the ungodly firestorm that is coming his way? His mother and sister are using him. They clearly don't care for his well-being, and they and they should know Herod well enough by now to know that he's not going to let this stand. And when push comes to shove, Herod's shove gets violent, and usually someone dies. So they have to know they are playing with Jonathan's life. Or maybe they're that delusional they think their plan is actually going to work. This is a man that literally everybody in the known region has tried to take his kingdom away from him, and so far he has beaten them all. So what makes them think a teenage boy is going to stand a chance? I will say for Alexandra, her plan is very cunning, devious, and it is smart as hell. She takes an entirely new approach with dealing with Herod. She just doesn't take him on militarily. She doesn't play this... Let's take out a family member and try and depose him that way. Let's try to find some by rule or some type of technical issue with his origins or his heritage and have him taken out that way. No, I'm going to use my own son against him. Yeah, she was in a pretty good position to do so. He, he did have the dynastic approval. But it's a very ballsy, cold and calculated move. And it was one that probably wasn't going to end well for either party. It was a dangerous game. She had definitely risked it all, all to solidify power for her family and more or less for herself. You'd have to make an educated guess that Marion would be pulling the strings behind the scenes. She would be feeding the information and telling Jonathan what to do if he was to achieve the role of high priest. So having her followed was probably a very smart idea. She was probably had contacts who she was getting information off of and feeding the information to. She was definitely planning a very big offensive against Herod. So Cleopatra sticks her big nose in and offers Alexandra and Jonathan asylum in Egypt. So what Alexandra does next is a little weird. She has two coffins made for her and Jonathan, so they could both be smuggled out of the city. I don't know why she thought that would be a good idea and why sneak yourself out of the city in coffins. It seems like a 
probably raise a lot of suspicions. Perrod is a smart man. He's probably got people watching for anything that's out of the ordinary. Like an adult and teenage-sized coffin being smuggled out of the city. You'd have to also assume that Jonathan's probably in the palace. So having a coffin smuggled out of the palace that is going to be smuggled out of the city is probably going to raise more than a few red flags and get the attention of more than a few people. So Herod makes the next move, and it's not what you'd expect. Rather than fight Alexandra and retaliate, which could lead to a falling out or even a conflict with his friend Mark Antony, Herod declares Jonathan high priest at the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is also a pretty ballsy move. He essentially fights fire with fire. He, rather than fight the guy... For the, for the high priesthood, he just makes him high priest. He gets the issue out of the way. And by doing that, he is also shutting down Alexandra's further plans. This would have undoubtedly thrown Alexandra off guard. She probably didn't see this coming and probably had no way of countering it. She was probably taken aback by it and was probably thinking, oh shit, I think the plan just failed. But at the same time, she's getting what she wants. The need for her to come up with a counter plan was probably diffused pretty quickly. She Essentially, she's got what she wants. Jonathan's now the high priest. Everything's okay. She was probably thinking, oh, um, I guess I'll go on to the next thing now. My plan's worked. Let's see where this goes. So Herod gave in to the pressures of his wife and the resurgence in Maccabean popularity in the wake of Jonathan's arrival in the city. Parading Jonathan around like a worm on a hook worked. People liked him. It achieved the desired effect. It got people talking about and supporting the Maccabeans again. Realistically, what were Herod's choices? By making him high priest, it would have satisfied the people. Like I just said, he's popular. He's going with the popular thing. He's more or less bowing to public pressure. He's keeping the people and the voters happy. What could he really do? If he banished him, this could have come back to bite him in the ass later on. Jonathan might have grown up, gathered himself an army, some very powerful allies with the backing and coercion of his mother, might have come back and invaded Jerusalem at a later date. You can say what you want about Herod, but he does deal with his problems up front. He does try to get rid of them once and for all, and so they won't come back to bite him later on. In hindsight, he couldn't really do much else unless he was willing to risk a war. As I said, the relationship with Cleopatra and Mark Antony was volatile to say the least. The relationship with his wife and the mother-in-law was just as turbulent. He's also recently just finished with a three-year war to take back his kingdom. You know, he's done that for three years. He's probably not looking to do it again. He would also be losing a friend and a very strong link to his father in Mark Antony if he was to go down that road. Also, like his father did with Harakonassus, he could control the high priest. So maybe this is Herod's plan. Maybe he thought, well, if I put this kid in, I can pull the strings from behind the scenes, regardless of his mother's influence. My father did it to Harakonassus. I'm going to do it to Jonathan. Herod would have been the intimidating factor. He would have been the older, wiser man. If he got in early enough with Jonathan, he, he probably could have steered the ship and got Jonathan to do what what he wanted to. So, Jonathan was a toast of the town. Those present at the feast praised Jonathan. 
He looked the part. He was dressed in the robes and headdress of a high priest. The crowd loved him and his popularity was only increasing. Herod was in a bit of a predicament. So, whatever was Herod to do? Herod solved the problem the best way he knew how. Herod invites Jonathan back to his palace in Jericho. This should have been one of the first warning signs that something was up. This also, in my opinion, is where we see one of the first deliberate and calculated moves slash plots to eliminate a rival out of jealousy and fear, and not one that is motivated by revenge or during wartime. Most of Herod's decisions in one way or another were justified for the most part, excluding Doris and her son's exile. Even the people he had killed up until now could be argued that it was just business. That's just how things were done. It's no, His actions were no different from any other king or queen throughout history. I mean, just look at, look at Henry VIII. He wanted to marry someone else. Divorce was pretty much illegal during this time. He had to get a sanction and approval through the Vatican. So how did Henry solve the problem? He just he had his first wife beheaded so he could marry a new wife. And when he tired of the second wife, he did the same thing to her. Herod has invited Jonathan back to the palace. It was a warm and humid night. Herod was suspiciously nice to the young Jonathan. He encouraged Jonathan to take a swim in one of the palace's many pleasure pools. Jonathan agrees and goes for a swim. While he enjoyed a moonlight swim, Herod had a few of his henchmen hold Jonathan underwater and drown him. The next morning, his body was found floating in the pool. His mother and sister were unsurprisingly devastated by this, but also angered by what had transpired. It wasn't very hard for them to guess who or how this might have happened. The news saddened the whole community of Jerusalem. A funeral was held for Jonathan. Herod is said to have broken down and wept openly for the young man. Was this display of grief genuine? Or was it to save face in the eyes of the public? Was this just to take the heat off of him? Or did he actually feel real regret and remorse for his actions? Was this just business? And was this just a part of the cost of that business? Or was it designed to throw people off the scent? Herod obviously wouldn't have gone parading around Jerusalem with a sign saying he was the one responsible for Jonathan's death. If he wasn't as popular as he was, he probably could have gotten away with it a bit better. But due to his popularity, he was at the forefront of the public mind. Had this been a part of Alexandra's plan all along? Had she put Jonathan in a position that if anything was to happen to him, that eventually Herod would be the one blamed and he would lose power, even if her son was dead? I don't think this is the case. I think she probably thought she was being very smart, come up with a very clever plan initiated said plan and this was kind of the fallout i don't think she expected herod to murder her son i don't think she thought he would go to such lengths to maintain his power but at the same time she was willing to sacrifice her son to get power so this is kind of anyone's game it's it's but it's a free-for-all at this point family members and friends are just pawns on a chessboard as for Herod, I, I generally think he probably did have some real remorse. I don't think he wanted to do what he did. I think he felt like he had to, because he pretty much had no other choice. Yeah, he could have probably handled it better. I think he was probably panicked and just had to end end the situation before it got even worse. Yeah, he probably could have had an assassin 
take out Jonathan in the marketplace or, you know, have him go on a, a trip to Galilee and he got robbed by bandits and was murdered as a result. He could have had an accident. There's a million other ways he could have made it look less obvious. But for whatever reason, he seems to panic and kill Jonathan at the palace, knowing full well that the blame would have come back to him at some point. This should have been a clear warning to Alexandra and Mariam. Herod was not to be fucked with. Look at how far he had gone to protect his kingdom. This isn't the first time he's done it, and it's probably not going to be the last. Jonathan was just a pawn on the chessboard. He hadn't done anything or threatened Herod in any way. He was really just an innocent victim of his mother's political game. And unfortunately, he wouldn't be the only innocent victim in this story. Herod's kingdom was secure again. Alexandra runs back to Cleopatra and reports what has happened. She finds a sympathetic ear in Cleopatra, but realistically she only really pretends to care. This is purely political, she more than likely doesn't care at all. If anything, she probably sympathised with Herod. After all, she did kill a few of her brothers and sisters to get power herself, so she was more than likely thinking, well I can't blame Herod too much because I did exactly the same thing to consolidate my own power. But this doesn't stop Cleopatra from intervening further. She devises a plan to take Herod out of the game. She enlists Mark Anthony's help and asks him to summon Herod to meet him in Syria. Goes without saying, Herod isn't meant to walk away from this. As I've said over again, the relationship between these two is pretty strong. However, is Cleopatra's manipulative abilities that good? Has she really manipulated Anthony to the point that he would even consider murdering one of his friends? And this is not just a friend, this is a, a king who was a friend. He's a client king of Rome. And he's a friend that has saved Mark Anthony on the battlefield more than once. Is he that enamored with Cleopatra that he can't see that he's being used by her? Herod prepares himself for what could be his last trip. However, Herod was no fool. He had a plan of his own. In his absence, Herod had his uncle Joseph appointed as viceroy. He also had Mariam placed under house arrest. She was placed under Joseph's guard and his watchful eye. Joseph was to have Mariam put to death immediately following the news of Herod's death. Herod has a plan, Mariam is at the bargaining chip, and the recent murder of her brother proved that he was a man of his word. She would undoubtedly die if he didn't return. This is a key strategic move and renders Alexandra's plan useless. He takes all of Alexandra's power over him and the situation away from her. She has lost a son to Herod, will she lose a daughter as well? You'd have to imagine she's probably thinking the same thing. I mean, he's killed her son, the daughter's next. Is it worth trying Herod's patience again? But Herod is not done. He goes the extra mile in cunningness and strategy. The physical battlefield is over for Herod. He now engages in full-blown psychological warfare and emotional manipulation. This is where things start to get weirder and more deceptive. As if things couldn't get weirder and more deceptive in the story. Apparently while Herod was gone, this is uh, an unsubstantiated claim as no one really knows for sure. As there is no one alive from that time period, obviously. This is all just hearsay from historical reports and accounts. So make of it what you will. Uncle Joseph apparently tells Mariam over and over again that Herod loved her deeply. And the most disturbing of all, well not really that disturbing for Herod, that he would rather kill her than live without her. So is this 
Herod telling the truth, or is he just simply playing mind games with her? Or is it all Uncle Joseph's doing? Or does he simply mean it? Any one of them could be true, but it's very hard to know what actually happened because the accounts are all very unsubstantiated and they're very and they're very much left open to interpretation. By most accounts, Marion was taken aback by the omission. She was probably more than a little concerned that her husband was an evil genius. So now Mariam strikes back. She takes an interest in Herod's sister, Salome, and starts to lord over her. One can only guess as to why she might have seen her as an easy target or tried her own hand at manipulating someone close to Herod. And obviously it didn't work that well on him, so the sister might be the next best target. If she can't get power over her husband, she's going to take it out on the sister. So Mariam's character is starting to really define itself here. She is proving that she's very manipulative, she's untrustworthy, and she's quite a nasty piece of work. She's not happy with where she is. She's not happy being married to a king. She's not happy being a princess. She is still content to manipulate anyone she chooses to try and get power or even obtain the thought of getting power over her over Herod and bringing back the Maccabean line, no matter how realistic the actual outcome is. So once again, Mariam underestimates just who she was going to war with. Herod wasn't the only one in the family that needed to be approached with caution. Salome played her own psychological game and proved just how manipulative and venomous she could be. So it wasn't just Herod she had to watch out for, it was the sister. But... As we're starting to see again, this is Mariam's own fault. She picked a fight with Salome, not the other way around. She's completely to blame for this situation and its outcome. Meanwhile, the city of Jerusalem began to fill with rumours that Herod had been killed while meeting Antony. In fact, the opposite was true. Herod proved what a sly dog he could be. He met with Antony in Syria and won him over again, with his charm and his unique ability at smoothing over Roman affairs. That's Herod's other superpower is he was just a genius at handling Roman affairs and Roman leaders. Not many people in history can say that. Most leaders that rebuttaled against Rome, it usually didn't end very well for them. They either got invaded or wiped out or were forced to pay tribute and become a forced to become a client king or kingdom of Rome. Herod, for all his faults, seems to be in complete control of his destiny and his relationship with Rome. Not once when you look back at Herod's history does he ever seem like he grovels to Rome. He's never put in a a position by a Roman official where he is forced to make a choice between Jerusalem or Rome, his own kingdom or a foreign one. They never ever say to him, you're going to join Rome or we're going to wipe you out. Herod always needs something. He needs a favor or he needs troops, military support, whatever it is, or Rome need a stable leader in the region so they can make further expansion into the territory. There's this platonic neutral relationship between Herod and Rome, and it nearly always seems to work out for Herod. So Mark Antony and Herod celebrated with a feast that lasted several days. All was forgiven, they hugged it out, and they realized they were BFFs. So Herod returns home unharmed. The trio's plan had failed. You can only imagine what his wife and mother-in-law felt when Herod comes striding back into the palace unharmed. So Herod is safe back at home, the crisis has been averted, and he has literally gotten away with murder. His world was returning to normal, or so he thought. 
Upon arriving home, Salome tells Herod that his trusted Uncle Joseph had seduced his wife while he was away. She also tells him that his favorite mother-in-law was planning a full-scale rebellion against him. Why is she doing this? What does she have to gain by it? Was there any truth to this? Was the mother-in-law in fact planning a rebellion against him? It doesn't seem outside the realms of possibility. She's proven to be a capable adversary and she has planned, plotted against him before. She's gone so far to go to Egypt and met with Cleopatra to bring him down. So this is not outside her wheelhouse. But what had Uncle Joseph done to Salome? Why did she throw him under the bus? He doesn't seem to do anything or harm anyone. Depending on what version of history you want to go with, did he actually tell her these things to, on Herod's orders? Or was he actually trying to manipulate Marion when he told her that Herod loved and adored her? What a manipulative little troll. So it's not just Herod who manipulates and takes out his own family members. Herod and Mariam are reunited by luck, really. And Herod confesses his love for his wife. The pair embraced and cried it out, allegedly. It's just stipulation because no one knows for sure. Probably adds to the story. So Mariam then lets on that she is aware of Herod's plan to have her executed. Mariam obviously doesn't know what was going to happen to her, if anything was to happen to Herod. This unsurprisingly sours the mood. Herod flies into a jealous rage and places Mariam under house arrest again. Unfortunately for his uncle Joseph, he has him executed. And this brings up a pretty big problem, in my opinion, is why. Where was the proof? Herod should have known better than to trust anyone, especially members of his own family, and definitely not his wife. It's all hearsay. This is all just, oh, Uncle Joseph said I did this. Where was the proof? If his uncle was so beloved, he should have had more trust in him. It seems a bit hasty that he rushes to kill his Uncle Joseph, based on the few accounts of his sister and his wife. The murder of Uncle Joseph appears just like the murder of Jonathan. Hasty, unplanned, and unwarranted. So for all Herod's cunning and his intelligence... He, his actions are still dictated by this paranoia and this impulse to just eliminate a problem once and for all without taking the consequences or really any evidence into account. He could have banished Joseph if he thought he had betrayed him. He didn't need to kill him, the same way he didn't need to kill Jonathan. There were better ways to handle it. So this does lend a lot of credibility to a lot of the historical accounts and a lot of ancient historians perspectives on Herod that he was a paranoid madman. I think he did suffer a lot from paranoia, depression, and uh, and some other mental illnesses. But to say he's an outright madman, I think is a bit, a bit of a stretch. He did have a pretty stressful life, but it's the way he chooses to deal with certain problems and issues that really do bring his character into question. The descent into madness is well and truly underway. This is the I think the second family member to be killed by Herod. It might be the first blood relative to be killed by him, but it won't be the last. So what is Herod's mindset? Are these just the trials a king has to go through? He's not, like I've said, mentioned before. He's not the first king or queen throughout history who's killed family members or who have had to take out close friends or rivals to consolidate power. This, is, this generally seems to be the way business is handled back then. Herod doesn't seem to kill civilians. He never seems to take his anger out or his unique problem-solving abilities out on the population he is ruling. 
I don't think he actually ever kills any civilians or, or anyone that hasn't really done, apart from the bandits in Galilee when he was young, but that was because they were robbing and murdering people. He has never just rounded up a bunch of civilians and had them killed because they were wearing the wrong colored shoes that day. So to say he's a tyrant is a very, very far stretch. Unlike a lot of kings and rulers who do take their anger out on their populations, Herod never seems to go that route. And this, I purely think, is because he actually generally loved his people. He doesn't seem, seem see it necessary to take them out because they're not a threat to him. And I'm not saying that if he, if they were a threat, he would have a, you know, a whole bunch of civilians massacred at at the temple or whatever. I just don't think he's he's wired that way. I don't think he ever views the ruling people as a threat, meaning that his duty as a king is to lead his people. And I think if there is a genuine problem and they are complaining about his leadership, he would probably try to fix it through leadership and keeping the people happy rather than just routing a bunch of civilians up and massacring them. He is generally threatened by the members of his own family because they are the most dangerous. After all, they all seem to be, for lack of a better word, fucking nuts. They all seem to be very manipulative. They all want power for themselves, as do a lot of rulers and people in this area at this time. It's not just Herod's family. I mean, look at look at his wife's family. They're completely batshit crazy. They've resorted to the similar tactics to get what they want. And the real threats to Herod's life and his power all seem to come through members of his own family or you know, political rivals and elites in power, not the civilian population. So fast forward a bit, the year is now 34 BC, and Mark Antony decides to undertake an expedition back into Parthia. After his first failed attempt left him the laughingstock of Rome, he needed to prove his effectiveness as a leader to redeem some of his credibility. Antony brings Cleopatra along for the trip, and this time he is successful in taking over, over Parthian Armenia. The pair see the sights along the way, and on the journey back home, decide to visit an old friend. Antony and Cleopatra visit Herod, spending a few days reminiscing about the good old days. So Cleopatra spending any time near Herod in his in his homeland, takes some serious courage. I mean, she visits him, but also spends a few days there, especially after what she has done and the and the conspiring she had done with Alexandra to take Herod out. That takes some serious guts, or maybe both of them are just completely crazy. So here's where things get really strange. Herod and Cleopatra spend the next several days flirting and plotting one another's demise. Yeah, so she can't help herself. Um, she can't just come there and say hello. She's got to try to seduce him like she did Mark Antony, like she did with Caesar, to try and get something out of it for herself. So Herod reportedly, most likely to Antony, that she had tried to seduce him. On the other hand, did this actually happen at all? He does have an axe to grind with her after all. She has an axe to grind with him. There's probably more than a few people on both sides of the coin that want to see these two fail. Like a lot of these historical accounts, there is a lot of hearsay. Who knows if it actually happened or not? However, it is a part of the story and we have to go with it. One positive, if Cleopatra is found out, Antony would get his friend back and Herod would get his friend back. They would also get rid of the wedge that has been getting bigger between these two, and that is obviously Cleopatra. Whether she tried to seduce him or not, it probably did happen. That's what she was like. She tried this with every man of power she came came into contact with, but it was also always to use them to get something that she wanted. 
The other question you have to ask yourself, was this all part of a game? Are these two just using each other? Or is it a trap designed to ensnare Herod? So Herod resists Cleopatra's charms and counters her plan with one of his own. He decides to get rid of the Egyptian snake once and for all and kill her. Fortunately for Herod and probably for Mark Antony and their relationship, Herod's advisors step in just in time and they prevent him from going through with his plan. Antony and Cleopatra return home to Egypt. This is probably for the best. Things weren't getting better. These two definitely can't be put in the same room with each other because they'll only plot and try to kill each other. So hypothetically, if Herod had gone through with his plan and murdered Cleopatra, he more than likely would have started a war, and obviously this would have destroyed his friendship with Antony once and for all. A further consequence of this, it probably would have seen a heavier Roman presence in the area. What happens next is highly dramatic and, once again, draws Herod towards a conflict that he did not cause. His loyalties would once again be tested. When Antony and Cleopatra return home to Egypt, Antony declares Cleopatra Queen of Kings in a very over-the-top and extravagant ceremony. He also elevates Cleopatra and Caesar's son to co-pharaoh, which is a huge deal. And it's one that probably would have had to go through Rome. It's also a situation the Romans probably would have appreciated the heads up on. If the balance of power changes in the region, they need to know about it so they can counter it. Not to leave his three children to Cleopatra out, he promotes them to kings of Armenia, Phoenicia, and Cyrene. It should come as no surprise that this ruffles a few feathers back in Rome. Antony's love for a foreign culture was seen as very un-Roman and unmanly. He was accused of going native and foregoing his Roman duty in favour of his oriental passions. So Antony writes a pretty heartfelt letter back to Octavian in Rome, pleading his case. He asks his friend Octavian why he had changed, and if his romantic life was really anyone's business other than his own. Unfortunately for Antony, he doesn't see the large ramifications of his actions in the eyes of the Roman Senate. Now, this is the big thing that he does overlook, is he thinks that this is just his business, it doesn't have anything to do with anyone else. Who cares if he marries a Egyptian queen? Well, the problem was he was already married to Octavian's sister, Octavia. And after a while, he had sent her packing back to Rome in favour of a life with Cleopatra. Issue here was obviously that he had pissed off Octavian and Octavia. She also acted as a middleman between those two, of often relaying reports and situations from Antony back to her brother. There was a huge big power pull in the region at this time. Everyone was wanting to be the what would become the first emperor of Rome. There's a lot of Roman generals that all wanted a slice of Rome and power for themselves. Octavian had a lot of external pressure coming from all around the empire. There was problems in Parthia after Antony had failed the first time. He was seen as not as capable as he used to be. And unfortunately for Antony, he doesn't seem to be able to realise this. He could be telling any sort of Roman or state secrets. At the same time, you can't have one of your top generals married to an enemy queen. It just doesn't work. So where's his alliance supposed to... To, to lie when shit hits the fan with Rome? Is he going to back Egypt and Cleopatra? More than likely. Or is he going to take sides with Octavian? The other problem was Antony had one of the biggest armies in the Roman Legion. 
his army was bigger than Octavian's, and he did, he did stand a military and political threat to Octavian's rule. Octavian was the nephew of Caesar and was probably pretty much next in line for the throne. He also ends up as the first emperor of Rome. Antony is blind to his own actions, and this is more than likely Octavian's biggest concern. He couldn't see the forest through the trees, more or less. The other issue, there was a lot of client kings, like Herod, who were backing Antony. This also bolstered his forces and posed a bigger threat to Rome. Unfortunately for Herod, he was loyal to both men in Rome and Rome itself. He was loyal to Octavian, but he was also loyal to Mark Antony. Both were Roman, both had their armies, both had their agendas, and the whole fight was going to go down in Herod's backyard. And the whole fight was going to go down in Herod's backyard. Cleopatra was viewed as a fatal monstrum. In other words, she was a bad fucking omen, or something outside of human normality. She was bad news, especially in Rome. Her abilities were kind of looked at as supernatural too. She was kind of this bad omen that you wanted to stay away from. She just spread bad luck and corrupted anyone that came into contact with her. She was even seen as possessing supernatural powers. She was also seen as one that would bring about destruction even if it were by proxy. So the stage is now set again. Octavian's powers had grown since his and Anthony's split, which left him as one of the most powerful men in Rome. Unlike several years earlier, Octavian doesn't need to share his power anymore. He also didn't need to run things by Anthony or his generals, which made passing motions through the Senate a hell of a lot easier. He could now impose his will and get his own way. In 32 BC, the Roman Senate revokes Antony's imperium, leaving him on his own. He doesn't have the power or protection afforded to him by Rome. He still got some of his military, some defected and went went over to Octavian or other Roman generals in the area. Some of his client kingdoms stuck with him, others defected. He was lucky to still have Herod on side. He's now without the security blanket of Rome. He's now left on his own and to his relationship with Cleopatra. Octavian declares war on Cleopatra and launches a full-scale military campaign against the two star-crossed lovers. Antony gathers his army while Cleopatra gathers her Egyptian and Phoenician forces. Both sides arrive in Greece to battle it out. So this puts Herod in another very awkward spot, one that he has been in a few times before. He is now left with a couple of choices. He has to pick a side. So does he choose his longtime friend, Antony, or back the side that is more than likely going to win? And depending on your point of view, was probably the correct one. After all, Herod did know both sides of the fight very well. He was friends with Antony and Octavian. If you recall from part one of the podcast, Herod had Octavian and Antony to thank for his fast track to becoming king of Judah. Both sides provided Herod with military support, in his war against the Parthians and Antigonus. So Herod, loyal as ever, backs his old friend, Mark Antony. He then attacks the Nabataeans in Jordan at Antony's request, or Antony's orders. This is a big issue for Herod. His mother was Nabataean. He had dealings with the Nabataeans, as did his father, and now he was sent to attack them. Herod follows his orders, he completes his mission, and returns to Antony, only to find him facing off against Octavian in Actium. Antony gets his ass kicked by Octavian's best commander, Marcus Agrippa, in the Battle of Actium. The Battle of Actium was a pretty significant and decisive naval victory. 
is one of the biggest naval battles of the ancient world. Antony and Cleopatra held back in the Bay of Actium and let Octavian's fleet come up and meet them. They were going to stay close to the fortified coast and wait it out. After a couple of months of waiting, they decided to attack. Antony's force was a lot smaller than the Roman fleet. Octavian's commander, Marcus Agrippa, was no joke. He was a very capable commander in the field and one that didn't get beaten very much, if ever. The battle begins. Antony sends his fleet out to counter Agrippa's fleet. He sends out a flanking movement. He has the two flanks come out to attack Agrippa. Agrippa moves his fleet forward to attack Antony in the center. Now, Antony has a bit of a secret weapon. He has Cleopatra's small reinforcement fleet behind him, located near the Bay of Actium. The flanks were getting pretty heavily bombarded by Agrippa. From what I know about the battle, I think it was pretty fair until the center fleet got overwhelmed by Marcus Agrippa. Antony's fleet is becoming overwhelmed and on the brink of collapse. Cleopatra comes out to save her husband, and what she does next does surprise people, and it's still a debated issue by historians today. What she does is she appears to come and help the fleet, but really she pulls up alongside the ships, buying Antony enough time to get off of his ship and onto her ship. Then she bypasses the center fleet and retreats back to Egypt with Antony, leaving her commanders a little dumbfounded as to what had happened. Some historians agree that this is just a ruse that was designed to buy time for Cleopatra and Antony to escape and retreat back to Egypt. Other historians argue that Antony's commanders had no idea what was going on, which is which is probably more, more likely the correct scenario. It seems that she lost heart in the battle or panicked and was just going to make a run for it. She comes and gets Antony. Anthony is not sure what was going on, so he just hops on the boat and he fucks off, leaving the commanders to wonder what had happened. Now, some historians will say that he, the, some of the commanders knew and they were playing dumb. Others say that they didn't get the, the retreat signal in time, and that's where the confusion came in. Either way, the plan works. Antony loses his fleet. Marcus Agrippa crushes Antony. He loses his fleet, and he wins the day. So the battle doesn't go well for Antony and Cleopatra. Their forces are no match for Rome and are defeated, forcing the pair to retreat back to Egypt. Herod backed the wrong side. However, he backed his friend and he was loyal to the end. So you can't fault the guy for that. As a result of picking Antony over Octavian, Herod's kingdom was now again in the crosshairs. After all, it was Antony that helped secure it in the first place. Lands of Judah could be seen as the spoils of war, and therefore make Herod's kingdom and his claim to it redundant. So whatever is Herod to do? Well, what he does next was very gutsy and very risky. Herod prepares himself for the end. He goes to meet Octavian, knowing full well that he will most likely be killed. He places his brother Pharos in charge of the kingdom. He moves Alexandra and Mariam to the mountain fortress of Alexandrium. His sisters and mother are taken to Masada, and just to be on the safe side, he has the bitter old Harakonassus strangled to death, just to be sure he couldn't interfere or try to manipulate the current situation to his own advantage. Makes you wonder why he didn't have Alexandra strangled to death. 
because Harakonassus hasn't really played much of a part in this tale up until now. He's really just been a background figure that I don't really think had much power left. Yes, he might have been able to influence people in certain ways, but he wasn't a political threat anymore. So as a precaution, he also gave the order that if anything was to happen to him while in Roman care, Marion was to be killed once again. He now embarked on a very uncertain journey to meet his fate. Herod sails for Rhodes in Greece, where he meets with Octavian. Herod is very upfront and straight to the point with Octavian. Herod lays his crown at Octavian's feet and proclaims to him not to take into account whose friend he had been, but rather what sort of friend I am. I think that's a pretty brilliant way to go into a very uncertain meeting with someone who literally holds the balance of power and the fate of yourself and kingdom in their hands. And that friend was a very unflinching and loyal friend to the end. As it turns out, this tactic works. Octavian was very impressed and reinstated Herod's crown. Herod returns home to Jerusalem with all the glory he had left with. A little later on, he accompanies Octavian to Egypt to meet his old friend, Antony, but it was too late. Antony and Cleopatra had both committed suicide just before the pair arrived. From this point on, Herod and Octavian hit it off and become very close allies and friends. Octavian was Herod's most loyal patron. Herod even became very close with Octavian's commander, Marcus Agrippa. There's a nice quote about this relationship by Josephus. Caesar preferred no one to Herod besides Agrippa, and Agrippa made none of his greater friend than Herod besides Caesar. So all parties got along, they were all very close friends, and Herod's loyalty once again paid off. He proved how valuable a loyal friend in the region could be to Rome. So this friendship had paid off. Herod's kingdom was increased, it now incorporated parts of Lebanon, Jordan, which had been under Nabataean rule, Syria, and more of the surrounding areas of Judah. Herod's kingdom was safe again, and it was once again his. He had defended his claim from internal and external threats, and had come out on top. He could finally rule unopposed. So Octavian bestowed on Herod great gifts that helped Herod rule, govern, and build his kingdom. He was now pretty much unstoppable. He, he once again had Roman rule. Now he's got Roman rule by the first emperor. No one in the region is going to touch him for fear of reprisal from Rome. His biggest and one of his most dangerous political rivals was now dead, Cleopatra. He had also lost a great friend in Antony, but had gained a new one in Octavian. He didn't really lose any of the reliable Roman resources that he had under Antony. He had just gained a whole lot more through Octavian. And the gifts he was being bestowed upon by the new emperor only solidified their friendship. He now had complete control and military, back, military support of the area. There's not going to be many things militarily that could stop him. I don't think the Parthians are going to try their chances at invading again. Egypt is no threat. There's no one that's going to be stupid enough to try and take on Herod's kingdom again. So Octavian dismantled Cleopatra and Antony's empire and gave those resources to Herod. He has a whole new stream of resources given to him to smooth over this transition of power. So these resources included Cleopatra's 400 personal Galatian bodyguards. This increased his already robust security force made up of mainly Thracian and Germanic warriors. Herod had an intimidating and capable personal army already that could do all his dirty work for him. 
He kept his hands a little cleaner and his reputation a little nicer. And this security force has just been bolstered by another 400 personnel. He's essentially untouchable. He also had a large amount of his inner court bolstered by ex-members of Cleopatra's court. One of Herod's most prized gifts from Octavian was Nicholas of Damascus, which is where Josephus got a large amount of his info on Herod from. So Nicholas of Damascus wrote one of the two surviving bios on Herod and one of the most reliable sources of information about the man, Josephus being the second. There are a few more accounts that were written, but that had been lost to time. But Nicholas of Damascus actually lived with the man, so his accounts are probably, depending on which way his bias went, are probably more, a hell of a lot more reliable than a lot of sources about Herod. Josephus came along about 100 years after Herod. That's where he gets a majority of his information about Herod from. So if you remember back to part one, Herod had a lot of interference from the many different groups in Judah. He had to keep the conflicting religious groups and subgroups, supporters and fanatics relatively happy. Ruling this area was no easy task for anyone. Proving himself to Octavian was probably the single smartest move Herod had made. He was good at finessing Roman leaders, but his relationship with Octavian was the most fruitful relationship of all. It paid off far greater than Antony. The resources and prestige given to him by Octavian really couldn't be matched by any of the other Roman relationships. Herod also presided over a large half-Greek and half-Jewish court. This was made a lot easier by the importing of Cleopatra's ex-court. He didn't have to go through a largely Jewish court anymore. He could now bypass some of the Jewish groups in the court that didn't agree with him. He can now rely on the Greek part of the court to agree with some of his agendas. So, while Herod was on campaign, Mariam had been up to her old tricks. She was manipulating and pulling strings even under house arrest. There weren't many people who were privy to Herod's plans for her. So Mariam comes up with a plan and charms one of the guards to find out what Herod has in store for her. The guard reveals to her that she is to be killed if Herod didn't return. So Herod returns home, the pair are reconciled. However, she doesn't make things any easier on his return. Mariam causes problems wherever she goes and with whoever she encounters. She publicly called out Herod for the murder of her brother. Yeah, so maybe this is a justified, yeah, we, we do know he did kill her, kill her brother, but this is just not smart. If she wonders why Herod wants to kill her and is concerned that he might, she is definitely going about it the wrong way. She's calling attention to a situation that Herod would rather have forgotten. This is still pretty fresh in the collective memory of the public. Now, fair enough, they probably don't know he was behind it, but a lot of them could probably guess that he might have had something to do with it. The same way her family and her mother all knew, knew it was him. So publicly decreeing that her husband had killed her brother, probably not the smartest course of action. Especially since she has narrowly escaped being killed by Herod several times before. So in another incident, she mocked and embarrassed Herod openly once again. Publicly in the court this time, where she told those present she denies the king's sex. So there's an obvious love-hate relationship with these two. Sometimes they're passionately in love, showing affection towards each other. And other times they're purely venomous and toxic towards one another. So unfortunately, hate wins out. She was planning Herod's downfall. 
To make matters worse, Marion picked a fight with Herod's sister Salome. She was pretty unstable herself and had an axe to grind with Mariam. So Mariam decides the best course of action would be to tease and taunt Salome. She would often call the king's sister a commoner, which back then is a huge insult. But it was also clever from a deception standpoint, because it cut straight to the heart of Herod's power complex. How could the king's sister be so low on the totem pole? Did this bring shame? Was it even a reality? Or was it a precise shot to the spine of the Herodian family? It might not seem like a big issue, but this brings up the whole legitimacy of the Herodian dynasty. It also brings up racial background issues, which were Alexandra's motivations for wanting to depose Herod in the first place. So there's a little more behind just calling her a commoner. And it was a very precise insult to put on a princess who already had a inferiority complex. Salome starts to get in Herod's ear, claiming that Mariam has a powerful hold over him and that he has been tricked by a love potion. Salome accuses Mariam of possessing magic and basically being a witch. So this begins the downfall of Mariam. Herod has her servants tortured until they confirm Salome's suspicions. But realistically, this was probably not going to work because the servants more than likely didn't know anything. This isn't really a great way to get to the truth because the servants are just going to tell the interrogators whatever story they want to hear or whatever story fits with the narrative to make the pain stop. They're pretty much giving Herod the answer he wants to hear. The guard that told Mariam Herod's plans for her was killed for his betrayal. Mariam was arrested and imprisoned in the fortress of Antonia, where she waited to be put on trial. Her plan had backfired epically. All her manipulation, all her lies came back to bite her, and it wasn't just her own life she was playing with. The madness was well and truly about to begin. Herod and Mariam by this stage had five children, two boys and three girls. The two boys were named Alexander and Aristobulus. The girls were named Salampsio and Cypros. There was another boy who drowned many years ago while he was very young. So unfortunately for Mariam, the jury was in. With a little help from Salome, who advocated for the Queen's demise, Mariam was sentenced to death. She was publicly executed to a hostile crowd who booed her. To make things even worse, Alexandra's own mother disowned her in a last-ditch attempt to save herself. Both women had well and truly underestimated the brutality of Herod. Mariam faces the music with nobility, resilience, and a little bit of humour. Telling her mother before she was executed, it was a shame she had exposed herself in that way. Most accounts claim that she was strangled to death. She departed the world like a real Maccabean, without changing the colour of her face, showing her true nobility to the crowd. Whether that's true or not is debatable. I'm not sure you have much control over the colour of your face if you're being strangled to death. Herod also has his young sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, executed. And this is a pretty big decision. It wasn't enough just to kill the mother. He has the male heirs to the throne also killed. In a very perverse and dark way, he is eliminating any type of legitimate challenge to his throne by getting rid of the male heirs. But at the same time, these are his sons. They're probably still young enough. He probably could have swayed them to his own point of view. Herod was distraught, he went berserk, flying into a rage of grief and agony. He believed Mariam to be a divine sort of revenge that had been sent to kill him. 
In the following weeks and months, the madness he had created took further hold. In a way, Herod is responsible for his own madness. He makes a lot of these decisions that have negative ramifications on his mental state. Herod wandered around the palaces calling out for Mariam. When he could not find Mariam, he ordered the palace servants to find her. When this didn't work, Herod threw elaborate parties and feasts to try and take his mind off what he had done. The festivities always ended the same way, with Herod emotionally breaking down and crying for his beloved Mariam. It's not long after, Herod becomes very sick and breaks out in boils. Herod still had a few enemies, and these enemies were about to strike while he was down and out. So re-enter the mother-in-law. Alexandra closed in on the sick Herod, making one last attempt to rid him and take power for herself. Even though Herod was sick, he knew Alexandra conspired against him. So, what does Herod do? He does what he does best. He has Alexandra killed along with several of his close friends who he believed had become friendly with Alexandra and planned his demise. Herod recovered from his boils and sickness, but he never fully recovers from Mariam. She haunts him and his kingdom, resurfacing in later years. There were rumours in the rubonic holy book, the Talmud, that Herod had Mariam's body preserved in honey and hidden. This may or may not be true, it's probably not true, but it does make a very strange and fitting end for the very strange and fascinating tale of Herod the Great. So I'm now going to read from Josephus. Chapter 4. Herod's Murder of Mariam and Her Children For his public successes, fortune made Herod pay a terrible price in his own house. His woes began with a woman whom he loved passionately. At the start of his reign, he had divorced his wife. He had married when a commoner, a native of Jerusalem, called Doris, and wedded Mariam, the daughter of Aristobulus, son Alexander. She was the cause of divisions in his house, which began early and grew worse after his return from Rome. First of all, he banished from the city his son by Doris Antipater, for the sake of his children by Mariam, permitting him to return for festivals only. Next, he executed his wife's grandfather, Harakonassus, on his return from Parthia, accusing him of conspiracy. Harakonassus had been taken prisoner by by Barsathans when he overran Palestine, but freed at the request of his sympathetic countrymen beyond the Euphrates. If only he had taken their advice not to go across the river to Herod, He would not have perished when innocent, but he was lured to his death by his granddaughter's marriage, relying relying on that and unable to resist the pull of his homeland. He provoked Herod not by claiming the throne, but because the throne was really his. Of Herod's five children by Mariam, two were girls and three boys. The youngest of the boys died while at school in Rome. The two eldest he brought up in the royal style, on account of their mother's noble birth, and because he was a king when they were born. A more compelling reason was his passionate love for Mariam, which every day consumed him more fiercely, blinding him to the calamities that his beloved was bringing upon him. For Mariam hated him as passionately as he loved her. She had good reason to be revolted by his actions and could speak freely because because of her hold upon him. So she openly took him to task for what he had done to her grandfather Harakonassus and her brother Jonathan, for he had not spared even him 
child as he was, he had given him the high priesthood in his 17th year, and after bestowing the honour, he immediately executed him. Because when he put on the sacred vestments and approached the altar during the feast, the whole crowd had burst into tears. The boy was therefore sent at night to Jericho, and there, by Herod's command, the Gauls took him to a swimming pool and drowned him. These were the things for which Mariam took Herod to task, and then she turned her attention to his mother and sister and heaped abuse upon them. Herod was muzzled by his infatuation, but the women were furious, and knowing that it was the most likely way of rousing Herod, brought against her the baseless charge of adultery, among much false evidence connected to convince him. They accused her of having sent a portrait of herself to Anthony in Egypt, and in her overmastering litigiousness, exposed herself. In spite of the distance to a man that was woman-mad and able to get his way by force, Herod was thunderstruck. In his passionate love, he was tormented by jealousy, and he thought of the terrible skill with which Cleopatra had disposed of King Lysanias and the Arab Malchias. He knew he was in danger of losing not only his queen, but his own life. So, as he was bound for foreign parts, he put Mariam in the care of Joseph, husband of his sister Salome, a trustworthy man, loyal because of their kingship, giving him secret instructions to kill her if Antony killed Herod himself. Joseph, with no evil intention, but simply to prove to her how passionately the king loved her, as he could not bear that even death should part them, disclose the secret. On his return, Herod protested with many oaths his devotion to her, the only woman he had ever loved. In a nice way, she exclaimed, to show your love for me, giving Joseph instructions to kill me. When he learnt that the secret was out, Herod was frantic and declared that Joseph would never have revealed his instructions unless he had seduced her. Blind with rage, he leapt from his bed and rushed wildly about the palace. This opportunity for slander, his sister Salome, seized with both hands, assuring him that his suspicions of Joseph, Joseph were true. Driven mad by uncontrollable jealousy, he ordered the instant execution of them both, but rage gave way to remorse. And as anger died down, love was rekindled. So hot was the flame of his desire that he could not believe her dead. In his sickness of mind, talked to her as if still alive, until time revealed to him the terrible truth, and filled his heart with grief as passionate as his love had been while she lived. The mother bequeathed her bitterness to her sons, who, aware of the blood on their father's hands, viewed him as an enemy, first at the time of their schooling in Rome, and still more when they returned to Judah. As they approached manhood, this feeling grew steadily, stronger. And when they reached an age to marry an and one Aristobulus, whether the daughter of his aunt Salome, the accuser of their mother, and the other Alexander, the daughter of King Atreus, the daughter of King Archelaus of Cappadocia, they made no further attempt to conceal their hatred. This boldness gave slanderers their chance, and more open suggestions were made to the king that both sons were plotting against him, and that the son-in-law of Archelaus, relying on his father-in-law, was getting ready to flee in order to accuse his father before Caesar. Stuffed with these slanders, Herod, as a bulwark against his old other sons, 
recalled his son by Doris Antipater and began every way to show him preference. So I was wrong. The sons he had with Mariam were actually adults, not kids. Still doesn't make it any better. This new attitude was more than the two sons could stomach. When they saw the son's commander promoted, pride in their own birth made their anger uncontrollable. And every new annoyance called forth an outburst of wrath. As a result, they provoked increasing hostility. While Antipater was now winning favour by his own efforts, he was very clever as flattering his his father and concocted a variety of slanders against his brothers, putting some of them into circulation himself and getting his close friends to broadcast others till he destroyed any chance of his brothers coming to the throne. Both in his will and by his public actions, Herod declared him to be their heir. He was sent in royal state to Caesar, with the robes and all other trappings except the crown. In time, he was in position to bring back his mother to Mariam's bed, and by employing two weapons against his brothers, flattery and slander, he cleverly coaxed Herod into contemplating the execution of his sons. Ah, so maybe Herod isn't just to blame after all. The other son wants the stepbrothers killed. Interesting. Alexander was dragged by his father to Rome to be charged before Caesar with an attempt to poison him. Having at last a chance to bring his grievances into the open before a judge more experienced than Antipater and better balanced than Herod, the accused kept a respectful silence about his father's faults, but vigorously combated the implications against him, having next made it clear that his brother and companion in danger was as innocent as he was. When he went on to denounce the villainy of Antipater and the wrong done of his brother and himself, he was aided not only by a clear conscience, but by the vigour of his oratory, declaring as his parotion that his father was free to put them both to death. If he was satisfied the accusation was true, he reduced the whole cult to tears and so moved Caesar that he dismissed the changes and effected an immediate reconciliation on the understanding that the sons should obey their father in everything and that he should be free to choose his successor. The king then took his leave of Rome, to all appearance abandoning the charges against his sons, but still retaining his suspicions for he was accompanied by Antipater who had inspired his hate, but dared not openly reveal his enmity through respect of the reconciler. What a fucked up family. A lot of effort has to be gone through to get a family squabble solved. Can't just talk it out, they've got to get Caesar to mediate. As he skirted Cilicia, Herod landed at Alasia and was hospitably entertained by Archelaus, who expressed delight at his son-in-law's acquittal and the greatest satisfaction at the reconciliation. He had previously written to his friends in Rome to stand by Alexander at his trial. He escorted Herod to the Xenferium and gave him presents to the value of 30 talents. Back in Jerusalem, Herod assembled the citizens, presented his three sons, explained his absence, and expressed his deep gratitude to God and Caesar for setting his troubled household to rights and bestowing on his son something more precious than the throne, concord. That concord, he went on, 
I shall myself knit together. Caesar made me lord of the realm and judge of, of the succession. And I, while acting in my own interest, will require his kindness. I proclaim these three sons of mine kings. And call first on God. Then on you to confirm my decision. The succession belongs to one by priority of birth, to the others by their noble parentage. My kingdom is big enough for more than three. Those whom Caesar has joined together and whom their father nominates, you must def defend, honoring them justly and equally, but each according to his birthright to pay one more respect than his age entitles. Right, we're skipping ahead a bit. The rest is just all the rest is all the technical stuff that happens between these two. Salome, enraged already by Glythea's abuse, was alienated by her own son-in-law, Aristobulus, who was consistently sneering at his wife for her humble origin, and lamenting that he had married a commoner and his brother Alexander, a princess. Between her sobs, she reported this to her mother Salome, adding that Alexander and Aristobulus were threatening when they succeeded the throne. To force the mothers of the other brothers to work at the loom with the slaves and make the brothers of village clerks. A mocking allusion to their careful schooling. Unable to contain herself, Salome repeated the whole story to Herod. She was naturally believed as it was her son-in-law she was accusing. A further slander was brought at the same time to the king's ears, adding fuel to the flames. He was informed that the two brothers were consistently invoking their mother, bewilling her loss while they called down curses on him. When he distributed some of Mariam's garments among his newer wives, they would threaten that instead of royal robes, they would soon be wearing haircloth. Hair These tales made Herod fear the temper of the young men, but he still had hopes of correcting their faults, and on the eve of a voyage to Rome, he summoned them before him. And after briefly threatening them, admonished them at great length as, as their father, urging them to love their brothers and overlooking their offences in the past, on condition that they behaved better in the future. They replied with the complete denial of the cha charges, declaring them to be baseless and accusing him with what would prove their statements true by their actions. At the same time, it was his duty to put a stop to tittle-tattle by being less ready to swallow it. There would never be an end to the lies told about him as long as there was someone to believe them. As he was their father, they soon convinced him by these declarations to rid themselves of their immediate fears, but their anxiety for the future was increased now that they knew of the hostilities of Salome and their uncle Pharos. These two, these two were dangerous enemies, especially Pharos, who shared all the apparatuses of royalty except the crown. He had a private income of hundreds of talents and enjoyed the revenue of all, of all Transjordan, a gift from his brother, who besides obtaining Caesar's permission to appoint him tetrarch, honoured him with a royal marriage by giving him land of his own wife's sister. On her death, he promised him his eldest daughter with a dowry of 300 talents, but Ferus ran away from the royal marriage for love of a slave girl. This enraged Herod, who married his daughter to his nephew, later killed by Parthians, but before long he got over his annoyance with Pharos and pardoned his lovesickness. Pharos had an earlier date when the queen was still alive, 
but falsely accused of conspiring to poison Herod, and now great numbers of informers came forward, so that Herod, though a most devoted brother, began to believe their stories and to take fright. After torturing many suspected persons, he came finally to Pharos, his friends. None of these made a direct admission that there was a conspiracy, but they said that Pharos was preparing to snatch up his loved one and make a dash for Parthia, partnered in his projected flight by, by Costabar, Salome's husband, to whom the king had given her hand after the execution of her former husband for adultery. Salome herself did not escape slander. Her brother Pharos accused her of pleading, pledging herself to marry Salius, regent of Obadas, king of Arabia, and a bitter enemy of Herod. Found guilty of this and every other offence with the with which Pharos charged her, she was nevertheless pardoned. Pharos himself was, acqu- was acquitted by the king on all counts. The storm that threatened Herod's house then struck Alexander, bursting about his head with all its violence. There were three three eunuchs whom the king valued most highly, as is plain from the office entrusted to them. One was detailed to pour out his wine and one to serve him dinner, while the third put him to bed and slept in his room. These Alexander had induced by large presents to minister to his unnatural lust. When this came to the king's ears, he put them to torture, as they at once confessed their criminal association, disclosing all the promises which had tempted them to it. They had been deceived by Alexander, who had them to rest their hopes on Herod, who told them not to rest their hopes on Herod, a shameless old man who dyed his hair, but to turn Alexander, who would succeed to the throne whether Herod liked it or not, and at no distant date would settle accounts for his enemies and bring prosperity and happiness to to his friends. Above all to themselves, they added that leading citizens had secretly offered the services to Alexander and that the generals of other officers of the army were conferring with them behind closed doors. These revelations so alarmed Herod that he dared not immediately publish them, but sent out secret spies night and day to investigate all that was done or said. All suspected were at once executed. Complete anarchy reigned in the palace. To suit his personal animosity or hatred, everyone invented slanders, and many availed themselves of the royal lust for blood to get rid of their rivals. Any lie found immediate Acceptance and the punishment came more swiftly than the slander. The man who had just accused another was himself accused, and he and his victim were led off to execution together. For the king's inquiries were cut short by the danger to his life. He became so embittered that he never smiled even at those not accused and was ready to bite the heads off his friends. Many of these were debarred from the court, and those who were safe from his hands felt the lash of his tongue. On top of Alexander's misfortunes came Antipater, who with the collaboration of his counsellors slandered him in every way imaginable. To such a pitch of terror was the king reduced by his ingenious lies and fabrications that he was convinced that Alexander stood over him sword in hand, so he suddenly arrested and imprisoned him and proceeded to put his gentlemen to the torture. 
Many died without a word, or after saying only what they knew to be true, others were driven by the agonies to tell lies, and said that Alexander and his brother Aristobulus were plotting against him and awaiting a chance to kill him while out hunting to make a dash for Rome. This improbable story, extemporized under pressure, the king was glad to accept, feeling more comfortable about the imprisonment of his son, now that it seemed justified. When Alexander saw that there was no way of shaking his father's belief, he determined to come to grips with his perils, and composed a four-volume incident of his enemies, admitting the plot but naming most of them as accomplices, of whom the chief were Pharos and Salome. The later, he alleged, had one night actually forced her way into his room and had intercourse with him against his will. These volumes, full of clamorous and dreadful allegations against the highest in the land, came into Herod's hands, and Archelaus then made a hurried journey to Judah in alarm for his daughter and son-in-law. In assisting them, he showed remarkable tact and by... Using guile, he brought the king's threats to nothing. The moment he met Herod, he let fly. Where is that perishing son-in-law of mine? Where shall I find the damned parricide? I will flay him alive with my own hands, and I will do the same to my daughter along with her charming husband. If she had no finger in the pie, she is his wife and tarred with the same brush. I can't understand how you, the intended victim, can take it so calmly. If it is true that Alexander is still alive, I came full speed from Cappadocia expecting to find him, expecting to find that he had paid the penalty long ago, and to ask your advice about my daughter, who I gave away to the scoundrel because of your great name. Now we must put our heads together about the pair of them, and if you are too much of a father or haven't the nerve to give your son what he deserves, he had better change, change places and carry out another sentence. Herod was taken in by the tirade by Archelaus, although against his better judgment. At any rate, he gave him a he gave him the documents compiled by Alexander to read, and went through them with him. Dwelling on each section, Archelaus then seized the chance of furthering his own shame, and gradually shifted the blame on the people mentioned in in them, especially Pharos. When he saw that the king believed him, he said, We must be sure that the young man really is plotting against you and is not the victim of a plot by these villains, for there is no obvious reason why he should have plunged into such a foul crime. When he was already enjoying the royal position and expecting to succeed you, unless there were people working on him and taking advantage of, the, of his instability of youth, people like that, can impose on the elderly as well as on the young and overthrow illustrious families and whole kingdoms. So I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. These arguments and others to the same effect soften Herod's anger with Pharos, but Archelaus continued to fume against Alexander, insisting that he would get his daughter divorced and take her home until he brought Herod round to the point of pleading with him on the lad's behalf and one more requesting the hand of his daughter for his son. With the most convincing appearance of sincerity, Archelaus gave him a leave to marry her to anyone he pleased except Alexander. He was most anxious to preserve the marriage links between himself and Herod. The king replied that he would be receiving back his son as a gift from him if he refrained from breaking the marriage. They already had children, and the lad was most devoted to his wife. If he stayed with him, he would help him to be ashamed of his misdeeds. 
but if he was torn from his despair, would be complete. A reckless spirit was tamed when diverted by domestic affection. After long hesitation, Archelaus gave in. He reconciled the young man and reconciled his father to him. However, he said that it was necessary to send him to Rome for an audience with Caesar, to whom he had himself dispatched a detailed report. Thus the stratagem by which Archelaus rescued his son-in-law was a complete success. When he said goodbye, Herod made him a present and of 70 talents, a golden throne set which with precious stones, eunuchs, and a concubine called Panachus, rewarded all his gentlemen according to their rank by the king's command. All the counsellors similarly gave Archelaus magnificent gifts. Finally, he was escorted by Herod and the nobility all the way to Antioch. Alas, it was not long before Judah was visited by a man who could do far more than the stratiments of Archelaus and who had not only brought to an end the reconciliation which Archelaus had contrived for Alexander, but actually compassed, actually compassed the young man's destruction. This proved to be the final gust that sent the storm-tossed used to the bottom. Salome ran to the king and reported the hint she had received. Herod, finally giving way, put both of his sons in fetters in a solitary confinement, and one of his gentlemen, Olympias, to Caesar with Salome's report in writing, they sailed for Rome and delivered the king's dispatches. Caesar was very grieved for the youths, but did not think that he ought to undermine the father's authority over his sons, so he wrote back leaving the matter to Herod's discretion, but recommending him to convene a joint committee of his own counsellors and the provincial governors to inquire into the alleged conspiracy. If the charges were provided were proved, he should be he should put his sons to death. If they had merely intended to abscond, a lesser penalty would suffice. Would suffice. Accepting this suggestion, Herod went to Beatrius, the place indicated by Caesar, and convened the court. In obedience to the emperor's written instructions, the bench was occupied by Roman officers, Satrinius and his legates, Pendius and others, together with Voluminius, the procurator, also present, where the king's councils and gentlemen Salome and Pharos, and finally the nobility of all Syria, with the sole exception of King Archelaus, who, as Alexander's father-in-law, was disturbed by was distrusted by Herod. The sons were not brought into court. Herod was too shrewd for that, knowing that they only, knowing they had only to be seen to melt all hearts, and if in addition they were allowed to speak, Alexander would easily refute the charges. So they were kept in custody at. Plantania, a village near Sidon. The king rose, and if they were present, launched out into a bitter attack. His attempts to prove the charge of conspiracy were weak, owing to a lack of evidence. But he emphasized the insults, mocking speeches, outrages, and offenses without number directed against him, harder to bear than death itself, as he told the court. Then he invited his silent audience to, to pity him, in that he himself was the sufferer even if he did not win a bit of victory over his sons. Finally, he asked them for several opinions. First to reply was Santanarius, was Saturnius, who was for condemning the youths, but not to death. It would not be right for a man with three children in the court to vote for the execution of another man's children. His two legates voted the same way, and several others followed their lead. Voluminius was the first to advocate the death sentence, and all who spoke after him 
were for, for, were for condemning the lads to death. Some from flattery and some from hatred of Herod, but no one from conviction that the accused were guilty. And now all Syria and Judah were in suspense, waiting for the last scene of the drama. But no one guessed that Herod would be so barbarous as to murder his children. He, however, dragged his sons to Tyre and after sailing from there to Caesarea, weighed the possible methods of putting the lads to death. There was an old soldier of the king called Tyro, whose son was a bosom friend of Alexander and who was very fond of both lads himself. He was so overcome with indignation that his reason gave way and he went round shouting that justice had been trampled underfoot. Truth was no more. Nature is confusion, life in a state of anarchy. And everything else occurred to a man deeply moved and without a thought for his own life. At length he went boldly to the king. You miserable wretch, he thundered. That is what I think of you. To turn against your own flesh and blood at a binding of utter scoundrelness. Over and over again you have condemned Pharos and Salome to death. And now you take their word against your children. Don't you see they are cutting off your legitimate heirs and leaving you with only Antipater? Choosing a king they can twist around the little finger. Take care, take care, the army doesn't one day hate him as it hates you because of the brother's death. There is not one private who doesn't pity the lads and many of the officers are cursing you openly. He proceeded to give their names and the king at once arrested them along with Trio and his son. Directly after this, one of the court barbers called Typhoro sprang forward in the grip of some frenzy and informed against him. I am in it too, he shouted. Trio here told me to cut your throat with my razor when I was shaving you and promised that Alexander would pay me well. Hearing this, Herod examined Tyro with his sons and the barber under torture, and when the first two denied everything, and the other had nothing to add, ordered Trio to be racked still more severely. At last, the son, greatly distressed, promised to tell the king everything if he would spare his father, and when Herod agreed, he started he stated that his father had been persuaded by Alexander to plan his death. Some people thought that he had made this up in order to end his father's agony, others that it was true. Herod called a mass meeting at which he accused the officers and Tyro and enlisted the help of the people to dispose of them. Along with the barber, they were killed, then and there with clubs and stones. They then sent his son to Sebasti, which is not far from Caesarea, giving orders that they should be strangled. The order being instantly carried out, he gave instructions for the bodies to be brought to the fortress of Alexandrium, to be buried by the side of Alexander, their mother's father. So ends the story of Alexander and Aristobulus. Alright, that's it for Josephus. So, what's next for Herod? Does he stop killing family members? Does he fall deeper into madness? Well, there's only one way to find out, and that is in part three. I know I said I wasn't going to do a part three, but unfortunately these shows get a little long, so it's just easier to do a part three rather than doing a 12-hour podcast on the one topic. On the next episode, we will round up in the story of Herod and have a look at his legacy, his building projects, and Hellenism. Right, that is the end of the show. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you'd like to support The Truth Tank, there's a couple of things you can do. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Podbean, Google, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, TuneIn, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Like and follow the Facebook group. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell people on the street, strangers on the bus. Spread the word about The Truth Tank if you're enjoying it. A big thank you to everyone who listened to the end. I really appreciate it. Part three will be available in February. I'm trying to work on getting shows produced faster, but unfortunately there's a lot of research and stuff that goes into them. And I like to do a thorough job before releasing some half-assed shit. So appreciate your patience. Thanks again for listening. I'm The Tank. This is The Truth. May the truth be with you.